Hello, and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia, with Dr. James White. Episode 19. Strike the tale of Vasily Gerasimov. As ever, in early January, the St. Petersburg Canal of the Moika was frozen over in its elegant granite banks, strewn snow almost entirely covering the creaking ice. The frigid gales of the Baltic Sea whistled and wailed along the narrow streets of the embankment, chilling to the very bone the fur-clad pedestrians of this most fashionable central district, all hurrying to return to the warmth of their firesides. But entirely unperturbed by snow, ice or gale, were the long rows of elegant buildings, their neoclassical facades watching the scenes, emotionless. The glassy eyes of one such edifice, the St. Petersburg foundling home, fixed themselves on one young woman as she approached, her cheap linens fighting a losing battle to keep the tendrils of glacial air from touching bare skin. The foundling home has seen tens of thousands like her, all of them clasping the same little bundles, the tiny products of invariably sad stories. We might imagine that this lady's bundle was bawling, perhaps in anticipation of the fate awaiting it. Perhaps we might imagine her drawing the tearful bundle closer, trying to offer a mother's protection for probably the last time. For when she left the founding home, to traipse to whatever and wherever she called home, she was no longer so burdened. Her child had been left to rely on the kindness of strangers and whatever wits nature had bestowed upon it. So began on the 14th of January 1852 the life and tale of today's hero, the future factory worker Vasily Gerasimov. Vasily's immediate prospects were not good. For all the benign intentions of its patrons and its staff, the foundling home had a staggeringly high mortality rate. In 1852, 5,848 infants in its care died, nearly surpassing the number of orphans left at its gates that year, some 6,237. It was fortunate then that Vasily left the orphanage only two weeks later, dispatched to foster parents in the northern province of Karelia, near the Finnish border, part of a scheme whereby the institute paid families 12 rubles a year to look after these otherwise unwanted charges. This was a tidy sum. Indeed, in 1857, government officials in Karelia complained that some peasant mothers were so enamoured by this cash that they focused all their attentions on the foster children, ignoring their own offspring so much that they died from neglect. With his first surrogate family, poor but kindly Karelian peasants, Vasily was to spend seven years, raised to speak not his native Russian, 
but finish instead. This was to prove a curse when, at age six, Vasily's birth mother paid him a visit, a not unusual occurrence for the charges of the St. Petersburg Foundling Home. We will let Vasily's own words describe how hard this meeting was. She could speak no Finnish, and I could speak no Russian. She would look me in the face and cry, and her tears left a bitter and deep impression on me for the rest of my life. I was never to see her again. Only a year later, another great misfortune occurred. Vasily's foster father died, leaving him to be dispatched to another family, a richer one in a neighbouring village. However, trouble seemed to dog Vasily. His stay here was cut short when a fire deprived this family of their material possessions, leaving them unable to care for this foster child. Vasily was moved again, this time to the household of a Lutheran pastor, Axel Perna. Here he was treated with great affection, considered by his adoptive parents and brothers, all four of them, as a real member of the family. But the bad luck that plagued Vasily struck once more. Run on a shoestring budget, the foundling home always found it difficult to cover both its own running costs and those charges it placed with foster families. Hence it had long relied on agreements with various factories, who would recruit the foundling home's orphans into their labour forces. On paper at least, the advantages seemed striking. The foundling home relieved itself of a considerable expense, while the children would receive an education, a trade, and, on becoming legal adults at age 21, several years of saved wages. Not entirely naive, the orphanage's administration also strove to agree with the factory's lenient conditions for this underage labour pool. So it was at the age of 12 that Vasily was selected for the grind of factory labour. He recalls the wrenching experience of departure from Karelia, as the pastor and his family begged the orphanage's doctor to exclude him from the list, even if for just only one more year. But it was to no avail. Given some last words of wisdom by his foster mother, don't lie, steal, cheat, smoke or drink. He, along with tens of dozens of others, was dumped on a cart and towed away towards a new life. This grim little caravan, which moved only at night to stop the orphans from running away, wound its way south, heading for the fortress town of Narva and the adjacent cotton-spinning complex of Kreenholm, on what is today the border between Estonia and Russia. Located a little over a mile south of Narva, the island of Kreenholm sits almost directly in the middle of the river Narva, dividing it into two streams. The river's rather placid waters then immediately form two turbulent falls before joining once again and lazing their way to the Baltic Sea. The potential of these rapids to power machinery had long been recognised. By the 1850s, 
the banks of the river had been colonised with textile factories for some years, although the island of Cleanholm itself remained relatively untouched. The task of utilising this excellent venue was left to the German entrepreneur Ludwig Knup, later known as the Moscow Cotton King. Born in Bremen into a wealthy merchant family with international ties, Knup initially worked with his uncle, a Manchester cotton magnate. Seeing the booming Russian textile trade, this uncle dispatched Knup to Moscow in 1839. Over the next two decades, the industrious businessman established an enterprise that spanned the globe, with offices and affiliates as far away as London and New Orleans. And in 1857, his eye was drawn to Greenholm. The plan he proposed was typically ambitious, an enormous factory complex that would exploit not only the roaring rapid waters, but also the nearby port of Narva to cheaply import cutting-edge machinery from Britain. The business itself would take on a modern aspect, formed not as Knup's personal property, but rather as a corporation with shareholders and a board of directors. Drawn in as investors and directors were both foreign and Russian businessmen. Among their number, we find the Englishman Richard Barlow, who owned a textile plant in the imperial capital of St. Petersburg, and the Muscovite Kosma Soldatenkov, a barely educated old believer merchant who had made an immense fortune in yarn. Local interests were also represented in the form of the Baltic German Ernst Kolber, mayor of Narva in the 1850s. He was the only director and shareholder to permanently reside in Greenholm. Buying the island in 1857 for 50,000 silver rubles, Knup and his associates got to work. Over the next four years, four two-storey buildings arose on the island itself, housing nearly 1,000 looms. To give some meat to this statistic, consider that St. Petersburg province, one of Russia's most industrial, contained within it only 3,864 looms at this time. Meanwhile, on the river's left bank, Knup and company rented land to build the workers' complex. When completed in 1862, this resembled a miniature town, with seven workers' barracks, apartments and houses for more senior workers and administrators, a school, an infirmary and a pharmacy. Some agricultural land was also rented, where produce would be grown for sale to the workers in a company store. The island factory and the workers' residence were joined by a long, if narrow, wooden bridge, 81 metres in length and 9 metres wide, standing some 10 metres above the water. As for the workforce itself, which numbered just under 5,000 by 1872, it was highly diverse, both in terms of skills and provenance. Initially, Russia's booming cotton industry meant that skilled weavers were in short supply. The factory had to recruit them in central Russia, offering relatively high wages and good conditions. As the elite of the workforce, 
the weavers were also given the best apartments in the factory barracks. The rest of the labour, the unqualified spinners and auxiliary workers, were sourced more locally, from among Russians in St. Petersburg province, on the right bank of the river Narva, and from among Estonians in Estland province, on the left bank. By 1872, the Estonians outnumbered the Russians more than two to one. The two populations were generally, although not completely, segregated, housed in different barracks and with their children being taught in separate classes, the Estonians had a Lutheran pastor on hand, while the Russians were provided with an Orthodox priest. While the nationalities were petitioned, the genders were not, however. Both the quarters for unmarried workers and the bathing facilities were unisex, at least into the 1870s. Thus, the factory's 1,318 female and 2,158 male workers had plenty of opportunities for fraternisation, a fact that later scandalised the imperial government. However, for all the modern aspects of the Kreenholm factory, other elements recalled the distinctly feudal arrangements at Russia's older industrial sites in the Urals. Until the construction of the railway in 1870, both Narva and Kreenholm were difficult to reach, either from the empire's capital of St. Petersburg, 136 miles to the northeast, or the provincial capital of Tallinn, 210 kilometres to the west. A ferry service between Petersburg and Narva ran only twice a week. Even local police officers and magistrates were some distance away. This, combined with Nup's personal prestige, meant that government oversight at the factory was non-existent. The factory administration ran the Kleenholm plants almost like a state within a state, penning their own laws to be executed by their own police force. Ernst Kolber, the only director on site, and the rest of the factory administration, almost exclusively local Germans, were akin to medieval barons, exercising absolute power over people and property alike. The abuses to which this led can be told through the eyes of our hero, Vasily Gerasimov. Arriving at the Kleenholm factory complex in 1864, Vasily and all the other foundlings ripped from foster homes in Karelia were immediately thrust into the harshness of factory life. Placed into a small apartment with 30 other boys, a teacher arrived on the scene. Since Vasily was born a Russian, he was expected to both speak Russian and know the basics of orthodox prayer. But, of course, he knew neither. Ignorance his new teacher quickly rewarded with several blows to the face and a threat of further violence with a birch rod. He and his fellow victims were then sent to bed, iron cots with straw-stuffed mattresses. Unable to sleep, Vasily tossed and turned. My entire past rushed by me, but what lay ahead, I wondered. The stern reception, 
The teacher's threats and the slaps with which he rewarded me did not arouse any rosy hopes in me, and I pictured my future in the gloomiest colours. I was very sad. How I yearned to see my good guardians, my natural mother, once again. How very passionately I longed to press them to my sickly chest, to tell them of my hopeless situation, to share with them my misery. But alas, they weren't there. And I cried the bitter tears of a child. The Seely was woken up at four in the morning to begin working at five. As with the adults in the factory, he was expected to work with only minimal breaks until eight in the evening. But this did not mark the end of a day for Vasili and the other child labourers, who had to endure another two hours of school, where the teacher was quick to dish out blows. Unsurprisingly, Vasili and the other children, roughly 400 of them during his time at the factory, gained little from their lessons. Exhausted and fearing blows, they paid scant attention. So, only at 11 o'clock in the evening were the children finally permitted some rest. The food supposed to give them the energy to get through all of this was meagre. Cabbage soup and slivers of meat, enlivened only by porridge on Saturdays. In the summer, things got particularly bad, since the cabbage was rotten and the meat soiled. Issued only with an overcoat, a shorter sheepskin coat, boots, shoes and a cap, the children, at least, had to toil in their undergarments. Quickly encrusted in dirt by the gruelling and filthy work, the soiled clothing rapidly turned to rags. The all-too-short sheepskin jackets did nothing to protect them from the grim Baltic winters when queuing with thousands of others to enter and exit the factory across the narrow, rickety bridge. Raised in villages by foster families, it is not hard to understand what kind of effect this onerous existence had on Vasili and the other orphans. Vasili himself relates the heart-wrenching story of one girl he had known in Karelia. In 1864, a young girl named Olga, who had been raised some 17 kilometres from our village, was brought to the factory at the same time I was. When she came to the factory, she was a beautiful and completely healthy child. Right after our arrival, I lost sight of her, and it was only three weeks later that I encountered her by chance on the way to work. I was shocked by the horrible transformation she had undergone in the course of those twenty days. Not a trace remained of the former Olga. She had grown terribly thin. Her cheeks, which had been bright and ruddy, now displayed black stains, and they had collapsed. Her splendid air was now in disarray. Her eyes had grown dull, and her feet were in such pain that she could hardly walk. Her dress was filthy, and she no longer wore a kerchief on her head. One did not have to be a prophet to foresee that she would not survive very long under these conditions, would not be able to endure this torture very long. And indeed, just two weeks after our encounter, she was dead. For all this suffering, Vasili and the adult workers were paid a pittance. 
from the moment of his arrival, Vasily had living costs deducted from his pay, leaving him with next to nothing to spend on himself. This was a burden all workers who lived at the factory had to bear. Indeed, the bosses were eager to recoup as much as they could from workers' wages, imposing sky-high fines for any breakages or violations of discipline. Violence, be it blows from the fist, birch rod or strap, and isolation cells, were also liberally used on both child and adult workers to punish unauthorised absences and other infractions. Even the factory's director, Ernst Kolber, liked to join in, as Vasily tells us. One day after work, I went with a comrade to the local dairy shop, where he bought some bread, butter and other products. The storekeeper, as was his wont, offered us each a cigarette, and we were smoking them as we left the store. Then, as luck would have it, we ran right into our boss, Kolber. As soon as he spotted us, he called me over and asked me if I was one of the foundlings. When I answered affirmatively, he burst into a rage. Such a little suckling and already smoking, he cried, and cursing me with an unprincipled word, he seized me by the hair and started slapping me back and forth on the face. It goes without saying that health and safety at the factory were totally absent, with perhaps the exception of the on-site doctor and the tiny infirmary, where the bedsheets were barely ever cleaned. In 1869, as Vasily recalls, a dreadful calamity occurred on the factory bridge. On finishing their shifts, the working men and women queued separately to be searched for contraband or stolen produce, itself a humiliation. The female guards, however, disappeared at a certain point. The queue grew ever longer, and the exhausted women, eager for some food and their beds, became impatient. Those at the back started to press forward, crushing those at the front against the rotten wooden guardrail. It duly snapped, sending some 150 women tumbling into the frothing rapids beneath. Roughly 75 did not resurface. The factory owners took no responsibility at all for the incident. As if all of this was not bad enough, even the weavers, the elite of the factory workforce, were also beginning to feel the pinch in the 1860s. As the American South was the world's foremost provider of raw cotton, the American Civil War caused an international crisis in the textile industry. At Cleanholm, the owners reacted to skyrocketing production costs by reducing wages, increasing fines, and reducing the autonomy the weavers had once wielded. With factory closures elsewhere in Russia, the weavers found themselves much more easily replaceable. When the civil war in distant America ended and market conditions improved, however, the clean home administrators did not restore to the weavers their earlier benefits. Discontent, no doubt of the constant simmer due to the workers' dire treatment, began to boil over. In the summer of 1872, our hero Vasily Grasimov was 20 years old and had worked at the factory for eight years. Two years prior, he had managed 
through a reputation for hard work, to join the ranks of the weavers, improving both his financial and social position at the factory. This also meant he was in a prime position to both view and participate in events that shook the factory to its very foundations. Two problems set the scene. First, scaffolding collapsed as masons worked on constructing a new building for the factory, leading to severe injuries and deaths. Second, cholera, a recurring visitor to Russia in the 19th and early 20th centuries, broke out at the factory, claiming at least 334 lives between July and September 1872. The workers held the factory administration to blame for the disease's spread. At least a few gossiped that the foremen were deliberately poisoning their food, an allegation that passed muster in a time when cholera was still not properly understood. A government doctor was, in part, inclined to agree with the workers, pointing to the overcrowded barracks, the shortage of outhouses and the exhaustion of the child labourers as reasons for the illness's rapid spread. The masons, itinerant workers who were only on site periodically, were the first to act. On the 9th of August, they demanded their back pay and permission to leave for their home villages until the cholera subsided. The factory refused to budge, leading 120 masons to march to Narva to speak with the chief imperial police officer. The others refused to work until they heard word from their delegates. The police refused to do anything, however, leading to a remarkable form of protest. That night, the masons silently paraded around the factory. I quote here the leading historian of the Kleenholm factory unrest, Reginald Zelnick. All we can do is imagine the emotional power of the scene, a grave march of hundreds of workers, frightened but exalted, holding aloft crosses and religious banners, circling the factory in silence on a white and sultry northern summer night, with only the noise of the rapids in the background, as they tried in vain to exorcise the demon cholera from their midst. If textile workers refrained from taking part, as both their previous inaction and subsequent arousal would tend to suggest, they were surely spellbound witnesses to this spectacle. Again, the factory administration still refused to acquiesce to the masons' demands. Consequently, most of them returned home, probably coming to the conclusion that it was better to leave without wages than to die at the factory of cholera. But the weavers had been watching and learning. On the 14th of August, 500 of Kleenholm's 900 weavers left their stations and strode into the large hall in front of Director Ernst Kolber's office. Their requests, nine of them, included a later start to the working day, 5.30 instead of 5, an increase in wages, a decrease in fines for breaking machine parts, the firing of some of the more detested members of the factory police, and a longer lunch break, 
one and a half hours rather than one. Kolba, playing for time by asking the workers to elect delegates to treat with him, implored for reinforcements from the Narva police, who duly sent a grand total of three officers. In their presence, Kolba tried to employ a tactic used by factory bosses across Europe, pleading he was, like the workers themselves, only an employee and could not do anything without the say-so of the owners in Moscow. Would they wait, he asked, for the owners to come themselves? The workers agreed and dispersed. A week later, on the 21st of August, the owners had still not arrived. The patience of the workers now evaporated, bursting into Kolber's office, shouting that either their terms would be met or they would stop working. Most worryingly, the weavers were joined by the less skilled spinners, which not only increased their numbers, but also gave their threat to cease work real force. If the spinners dropped everything and walked out, production would grind to a complete halt. Fortunately for Koba, it was not only the owners that were expected that very day, but also Prince Mikhail Shachovskoy Glebov Streshnev, the governor of Estland. By this point, the provincial branch of the imperial government had gotten wind of the discontent at the factory and wanted to defuse the situation as quickly and as peacefully as possible. Taking charge, Governor Shachovskoy persuaded the workers to form delegations, half Russian and half Estonian, to present their conditions, which he then gave to the owners Knup and Soldatenkov when they arrived from Moscow. Concessions were duly made, an extra quarter of an hour for lunch, the working day to begin at 5.15 with a grace period of another 15 minutes before fines for lateness could be exacted, a small increase in wages, the firing of a particularly antagonistic foreman, and an agreement to review the cost of replacement parts. In sum, all parties had reason to be satisfied. The workers had had some of their demands met and had received a sympathetic audience from the region's most highly placed government official. The governor had staved off a potential source of unrest, and the factory bosses had lost very little working time in exchange for relatively minor concessions. And it might have ended there, were it not for Director Kolber's intransigence. Formerly the absolute ruler of the Kreenholm factory, his authority had been publicly flouted, and he had been humiliated. Together with some factory police and workers receptive to bribes, he formulated a comeback. In the name of the supposed majority of the factory workers, Kolber penned a petition to the factory owners asking for the revocation of the August concessions and the firing of the dissent's alleged ringleaders. On the evening of the 9th of September, two of Kolber's pet workers took this petition to a nearby tavern, inviting workers to sign in exchange for free vodka. However, rumours of this treacherous tactic had been circulating around the factory several days beforehand. The pub was quickly surrounded 
by 150 angry workers. Kolber's men fled, taking shelter with the factory's business manager, Alexander Frey, in his private residence. The crowd followed, organised by two Estonians, Willem Preissmann and Jakub Tam. They demanded that Frey hand over the two suspected scabs. With patience thin and alcohol from the tavern flowing, a large throng pushed into Frey's house. A man possessing nerves of steel, he faced them down and persuaded them to depart. But the workers were not done. Now fully convinced that management intended to walk back the concessions, they decided to appeal to the government, dispatching six delegates to Narva to talk with the local police captain, asking for an audience with the previously sympathetic Governor Shachovskoy. But Kolba had had the same idea, sending his own messages to the Narva police. While the six worker delegates waited with the officer, this messenger arrived. Julie persuaded that the workers were rebels, the police captain arrested the Narva Six and placed them into custody. On Monday the 11th of September, the rest of the workers were appraised both of the events of Saturday night and the arrest of their leaders. 200 of them constantly smashed their way into the factory offices, requiring the release of their incarcerated comrades. Kolber flatly refused, at which point he was given an ultimatum. Release the leaders by 12 or face a complete work stoppage, with entrance to the factory blocked. Kolber managed to dart off a telegram to the governor before the threat was executed. At 12.30, strikers, armed with cudgels and sticks, occupied the mainland side of the bridge. Workers attempting to return to their posts after lunch were stopped and turned around. Kolber's house was surrounded, with the mob waving birch rods, and explicit threats that Kolber was to be subject to the same punishment he had so readily inflicted on workers. Another large group of strikers, our hero Vasili among them, decided to march on Narva to secure the release of Tam, Priceman and the other instigators. The police flatly declined to liberate their prisoners, although Tam managed to throw a note from his jailhouse window, urging his comrades to fight on. The crowd resolved once more to telegram Governor Shachovskoy. By now, the governor was already aware that a sizable and violent incident was taking place in Kleenholm. A half-strength infantry battalion, some 300 men, was dispatched to Kleenholm, where the workers had armed themselves with rocks, hurling some of them at Kolber's house. They were not prepared for an open battle with armed infantry and scattered on the soldiers' arrival. They were not, however, ready to entirely cede their control of the factory. The next day, the 12th of September, was marked by skirmishes between outnumbered army patrols and large groups of stone-throwing weavers, desperately trying to disrupt the army's efforts to free up the bridge to the plant. Few workers managed to cross, effectively closing the factory. This was to continue until the end of the day when a second infantry battalion arrived, accompanied by Governor Shachovskoy. 
This finally put an end to the strike, with the soldiers taking over the factory. A few days later, they were replaced with police officers, 18 in all, sent especially from St. Petersburg. Now began the consequences. Shahovskoy and other officials launched several full investigations over the coming weeks into the events of Kleenholm. Their conclusions were clear. The fault for the strike lay predominantly on Kolba and the other factory top brass. Already in August, Shahovskoy had developed an immense dislike of Director Kolba for his apparent belief he had the right to run the Kleenholm factory without any regard for either imperial law or human decency. In his view, Kolba only had himself to blame for reigniting turmoil that had been successfully quenched in August. As one provincial official stated during the investigations, Beyond the reach of all supervision, taking advantage of his own power, and also of the helpless condition of the workers, and counting on his many personal connections. For many years, Mr. Kolber has run the factory completely despotically. He has been both judging his own disputes with workers and implementer of his own decisions. Kolber's unrestricted exercise of arbitrary power has weighed heavily on the working population. Kolber was consequently forced to resign on the 22nd of September, 1872, but this was not a sign of the factory administration's penitence. Indeed, having invited the imperial government into the factory when the crisis had been at its deepest, the bosses tried everything to get them to leave now that things had stabilised. They deeply resented having to pay for the police detachment left to maintain order, especially since, in their view, the officers were lamentably pro-worker. So began a campaign of petty nose-thumbing, with the bosses refusing to allocate food, accommodation and pay to the police officers. Kolber, although he knew he was persona non gratia in the governor's eyes, repeatedly turned up in his capacity as a shareholder to issue orders to his replacement. Despite Shahovskoy's demand for moderation in victory, the bosses proceeded to purge anyone remotely connected with the strike, including families. Reforms suggested or even demanded by the state were resisted, with the partial exception of so-called hygiene reforms, meaning the introduction of gender-segregated barracks and bathhouses. Even an order from Emperor Alexander II for the implementation of changes at the factories, especially in terms of child labour, went largely unheeded. Possibly the most significant change was the creation of a magistrate's district that would encompass the River Narva factories, thus giving workers a place to appeal cruel or arbitrary treatment. However, police reports suggest that the foremen and factory police used fines and other punishments to prevent workers from visiting this office. Scarce wonder, then, that there was another strike at the Kleenholm plants in 1882. For the workers, the repercussions were much, much harsher. Even though Governor Shachovskoy, other provincial officers, and even a few central bureaucrats placed the blame for the strike and its violence on Ernst Kolber, 
their compassion for the Klinghorn toilers could not save those identified as instigators and ringleaders. In late 1872, trials began in Tallinn. In all, there were 35 mostly Estonian defendants, 13 of whom were legally underage, that is, under the age of 21. Of the 35, 27 were found guilty of instigating or participating in a violent riot. They received sentences including indefinite exile to Siberia, eight years hard labour in prison mines, four years hard labour in prison factories, 30 months in penal battalions, and 80 blows with birch rods. Ironically, five of the Narva six were acquitted, since their jail time in Narva meant they had not been able to participate in the worst of the violence. Of their group, only Jakub Tam was convicted and condemned to exile in Siberia, as the fact that he had thrown a note from his jail window to the strikers was counted as instigation to riot. The injustice was clear even to those in government. But it's the workers who are being punished terribly severely, while Kolber and company prosper, jotted down one police official on reading the later report. Our hero Vasily, although a participant in the strike action, survived the factory's crackdown. However, he quickly found he could no longer endure conditions in Kreenholm. The breaking point came in December 1872, when Vasily decided to play truant from work in order to serve as best man at a friend's wedding. Dragged off by factory police on the third day of the celebrations, he was shoved into a solitary imprisonment cell for several days. Upon emerging, the factory and Vasily mutually ended his work contract, with a now ex-worker receiving both back pay and savings of 331 rubles. This not insignificant sum tidied Vasily over while he set himself up for a new life in his home city of St. Petersburg. Initially trying his hand in some more factories and at other odd jobs, Vasily finally found his calling in 1874 as a propagandist of revolution. Although neither revolutionaries nor socialist ideas had played any role in the clean home disturbances, radical students and intellectuals in St. Petersburg were, in the early 1870s, just beginning a decades-long effort to recruit the workers and peasants of the Russian Empire to the cause of their own liberation. Vasily Gerasimov was among their first recruits. Approached by Diomid Alexandrov, a fellow foundling and Kreenholm veteran, in 1874, Gerasimov threw himself into the revolutionary cause, partaking in reading circles with gusto, despite his rather limited literacy. As he puts it in his memoirs, there was nothing strange in this new twist in his life. The socialist ideas did not seem alien to me. Abandoned by my family, compelled from earliest childhood to wander among strangers, to endure every possible misfortune, I was conscious of the complete inadequacy of the existing order. I had seen how my brothers and sisters at the clean home factory perished, 
and I could not remain a passive witness to their destruction. For two months, Vasily and his childhood chum, Alexandrov, roved around taverns filled with proletarians and soldiers, handing out revolutionary literature and making speeches. Their enthusiasm was to be their downfall. Reports on Vasily's activities made their way to the secret police, who moved to apprehend the former foundling. Aware that the game was up, Vasily planned to flee to Karelia, hoping to once again find Pastor Axel Perna, the man whose family, so many years ago, had provided him with some of the only warmth and affection he had ever known. Waiting to depart at the Finland train station on the 11th of April, 1875, Vasily was noticed and apprehended by two guards. Finding socialist pamphlets in his pockets, he was quickly sent to the secret police. Although better men than Vasily cracked under the regime of solitary confinement and interrogation used by the Tsarist secret police, he mostly kept his nerve and did not betray his co-conspirators. At the one point when he came close to doing so, the police brought in his friend Alexandrov in an effort to persuade the latter that all was lost. Alexandrov cried out in Finnish, why do you fear these fools? Before being quickly silenced by the guards. But the shout was enough to give Vasily the strength to keep stum. He did so throughout much of his trial in 1875, only speaking to deny guilt and claim the witnesses against him were in error. Although he was culpable only of distributing revolutionary ideas, he was found guilty of crimes against the state and sentenced to nine years of exile and hard labour. On the 25th of October 1875, he was subjected to a civil execution, a public ceremony where convicts were stripped of their privileges and place in law-abiding society. Vasily's account is worth repeating. There are three of us, Dyakov, I and Diomid Alexandrov. On each of our chests hung a black board on which was written for crimes against the state. We were accompanied by two executioners and a priest. When we arrived at the scaffold, the executioners untied our hands and feet, which had been bound with straps, and helped us to the ground. Then the priest stepped up to us and instead of an admonition, said, You are literate people and you know just what you're doing. Then he lifted the cross to us. Then the executioners again approached us and taking us by the arm led us up to the scaffold. After the secretary read out the sentence of the court, the executioners took us to the posts of disgrace and chained us to them. We remained there very briefly. Dyakov wanted to cry out, Down with despotism! Long live the social revolution! But he'd barely managed to open his mouth when the drums began to bang and the executioners grabbed us and dragged us to the carriage. For five years, Vasily was shuttled from one prison to the next, before finally being sent to Siberia, coming to his final destination of Ikutsk in 1881. It was at about this time he wrote his memoirs at the behest of a fellow prisoner. 
Although released in 1883, he was forbidden from relocating to other parts of the empire, and so in Akutsk he remained until his death in 1892, aged 40. Little remembered even when the Bolshevik government set about religiously honouring Russia's earlier revolutionary martyrs, a bust of Vasily Galisimov, based on imagined facial features, since no photograph is known to have survived, was installed in the Museum of the Clean Home Factory after Estonia's annexation by the Soviet Union. A classic story of the insulted and the injured, of a perpetual down and out, the tale of Vasily Gerasimov has several moments that loom large. His abandonment almost from the moment of birth, and his arrest and exile in particular. But, in a deeply ironic way, nothing better represents him than the Klimholm factory he detested, and the strike that shook it. The Sealy, the factory and the strike, particularly encapsulate a moment of transition as the Russian Empire entered its final half-century. The transition away from the quasi-feudal society of serfdom to something much more modern. The Clean Home Factory was a peculiar mixture of modern capitalist corporation and feudal factory outpost, funded by international capital, equipped with the best technology money could buy, headed by a board of mostly absentee directors with homes across the European continent and beyond, it was also a nearly autonomous fiefdom, run with autocratic abandon by Ernst Kolber and his ilk, with scant regard for imperial law. Few examples point out better one of the most fascinating contradictions of the imperial Russian state. Declaring itself supreme in all respects, the absolute lack of administrative or police oversight in large portions of their vast realm meant that it ultimately had no choice but to hand power, sometimes in vast quantities, to people on the ground like Kolber. But the days of such little kingdoms were clearly numbered. For all the clean home management to work to obstruct imperial agents after the strike, the eyes of the government were now firmly fixed on the factory. As for the 1872 clean home strike, this too evinces a combination of the modern and the medieval. Formal strikes, rather than simply episodes of disorganised unrest, were a brand new phenomenon in the Russian Empire. The clean home agitators do not seem to have even known the word strike, referring to their action as a stoppage. Their demands were restorative rather than transformational, a request for the factory administration to return to the golden days of old, when the weavers had received some meagre privilege and status. The strikers were as yet not really members of a working class, born and bred into proletarian labour. Rather, they were peasants who just happened to have ended up working at a factory. But on the other hand, their protest was not the inchoate, unbridled rage of a peasant uprising, but rather an organised and disciplined effort 
to obtain concessions. They showed remarkable solidarity for a group divided in terms of nationality and as yet untouched by the guiding hand of militant Labour leaders capable of negotiating with factory bosses and governors alike. This was a sign of things to come. And as for Vasily Gerasimov, he too sits on a bridge between two worlds, a Russian whose native language is Finnish, one of the last representatives of the peasant come worker, but also one of the first members of the revolutionary proletariat. Like generations before him, he saw and suffered from the injustice, the cruelty, the malice and the pain of a system that just did not work, or at least did not work for those like him. Like generations after him, he began to articulate the way out of this condition in terms of revolutionary upheaval, of tearing the system utterly apart and rebuilding it anew. It was these later generations who, in 1917, brought Vasily's work to fruition and sent the entire edifice of imperial government crashing down. But this, dear friends, is a tale for another time.